Thank you. Now I can preach. Cool. Hey, everyone. Wow, we got a packed balcony on the right side up there. Right on. I don't know what's going on in there. Maybe some popular people up there. Um, spot to be. Welcome, back balcony, and welcome to all y'all. Uh, I'm excited to get back up here. It's been a while since uh, we've jumped back into the book of Matthew. I feel like now that we've been in it every week for a year and a half, it feels strange to go a week without some Matthew dosage. So we're going to jump back into the book of Matthew. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, or it's going to come in a very fancy manner up here on the screen above my right shoulder. We're going to jump in at Matthew chapter 14. We're going to start at verse 1. For those of you who are new with us, we've been going through the, the book of Matthew verse by verse for some time now, and it's been an absolute joy, and we're still going. We're halfway there. So, in 2020, we'll make it. But it's not about the destination, it's the journey that matters. So here we go, verse 1. At the time Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, uh, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So Jesus is doing crazy miracles. There's crowds following him around. Uh, amazing things are going hard on. Herod hears it, and the logical explanation, of course, is that it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. So that's what, uh, that's what Herod is, uh, is thinking is going on here. Verse 3. Now Herod had arrested John, and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but was afraid of the people because they had considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took the body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place. It's, very, it's getting very late. Send the crowd away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 5,000 men besides women and children. So probably a very familiar story to many of us. Um, this is kind of one of those passages that in Bible study comes up a lot, uh, for those of you who have done a lot of Bible study. 
Um, but I absolutely love this passage where, where Jesus, in his time of mourning and need, is able to step out of himself and meet the needs of the people. I don't know if you caught that or kind of like how human Jesus can be if you read it into this passage, but John the Baptist was his cousin, um, but more importantly, he was a very key part of Jesus's life. There was this prophecy that John the Baptist would go before him and prepare the way of the Lord, preparing the way for Jesus's ministry to happen. And so he was, yes, a cousin, but I think more special than that to Jesus, he was this guy who had, had been such a critical part of his life and preparing the way for his ministry to happen. And so if you think about Jesus's life over the course of 30 years or so, he's having interactions with John, he's seeing what John's doing, he gets baptized by John in the Jordan River, the dove comes down and rests on him at this moment. They've shared a lot together. And so the bond between these two guys was probably very, very, very strong. In addition to that, if you think about who John was and who it represented to the disciples, he was a key part of Jesus's ministry as well. And so you think about this, they're following Jesus around, and this dude who's like really close to Jesus gets his head cut off in prison, and they hear about it. And so for Jesus himself, you can see it hits him, you can see it impacts him, Right when he hears the news, it says he pulls away and retreats to a solitary place. I love this part of Jesus. Like, don't miss this part of the heart of God, where, you know, the expectation that we could have of Jesus is that he's got such high and lofty thinking that he just rises above it and says, don't worry, John's in heaven with the Father right now, and everything is all, and, and that's not at all the response of Jesus. There's this response of Jesus where he pulls back, and there's a very godly moment that he's having of living in the moment of this beloved friend of his, his cousin, this special man to him, and honestly a representation of the move of God that gets hit on the earth. And Jesus pulls back, and he gets into a boat, and he needs some time alone. And I just... We got to not strip the human out of Jesus when we read the scriptures. Why was he doing this? What was he talking to God about as he was out there on the sea? Was he mourning? Was he weeping? Was he, did he have full understanding? Was he saying like, God, I don't get this. Why is this going on? Where, where was Jesus? The thing that we do get out of it is that he clearly entered a place where he was engaging God about it, and there was real stuff going on. He hears the news and he wants to be alone, we see in verse 13. You know, when I was reading this, it reminded me of, I, I started meditating on certain times in my life where I felt like something in life happened that hit me in a place that I wanted to retreat and go and be alone. And I think when we think about it in those ways, we all have those places in life. We all have those times where something comes up it could be intensity in our work, where it's just like overwhelming. It could be something that happens in the news. I remember where I was when 9-11 happened. I was laying in my bed in Novato, and I woke up with this really eerie feeling. And I was like, something is just like strange. And I turned on the television, and all of it was going on right at that moment. And it's just like, there's things that happen in life that make us feel like they just like want us to pull back. And I think what Jesus models here 
is that there's a time for godly mourning. There's a time to enter into that with the Lord, and he goes away and he spends time with the Lord. There's, there's also a category of things that I would say that, that happen in life that feel like they're incredibly overwhelming that make me want to retreat, where it's not me going and just spending time with the Lord and connecting with God in the boat on a river. It's me encountering something in life and it knocking me back and me going like, wow, I'm like, I'm in it right now. And what we'll see here is that Jesus absolutely doesn't live there, but the disciples will get an experience of this. As the disciples go through this, the disciples are, are impacted with something that happens they're, they're, they're feeling a sense of being overwhelmed in this passage as well, and they handle it in a very different manner. And so I wanted to jump into that as well. So Jesus goes away, and then the crowds follow him. So he's in his morning, he's in his moment of mourning, the crowds follow him. He literally gets on a boat, and it sounds like the crowds run around the lake or the, the sea to meet him on the other side. For those of you who have been in ministry or in any kind of work where there's great need that you're trying to meet, you maybe have compassion on Jesus in this particular passage, right? All you want to do is get one freaking minute alone, <laughs> and you get into a boat, and you start cruising, and you, you come up to the shore, and the human in me, not in Jesus, is like, are you serious? Are you kidding? You can't give me, like, you can't give me a half a day without coming and like there being some great need that you need. And I, man, I'll tell you, in this season of my life especially, I have huge compassion for this, this part of, I mean, Jesus, you know, Jesus is in a different place, obviously. <laughs> but when I read this, I'm like, man, like sometimes what happens, so Friday night, for those of you guys who may know, is my night. <laughs> it is my night. The rest, of, the rest of every day of the week, my house is wide open, come in, grab, grab me if I'm available, like all that stuff. Like I am on the basketball court ready to play the game. Friday night is the day that I step off and I'm not on the basketball court anymore. I'm on the bench and I'm sitting there and I'm like, yes, I can do whatever I want. There's no pulls on me. And so sometimes I choose to vegetate on the couch. And sometimes while I'm vegetating on the couch and watching some show or whatever it is, someone will come in, and they don't know that I'm now off the court, and they'll start talking while I'm trying to watch TV, or they'll start to ask me a question about work or whatever it is, and this thing rises up in me. <laughs> I'm being totally honest with you. If I've snapped at you in these moments, it's because I'm, I've got some flesh in me still, and... Friday nights, I feel like, are the time where I just shut it off, and I totally need it. And I feel like this is Jesus' Friday night, right? But he totally doesn't respond like that. He comes over the lake, and he doesn't have any of that resentment stuff inside. He comes to the other side, and he sees a people in great need. The disciples also have great compassion in their hearts as they say, Jesus Send them away. <laughs> Tell them to go get something to eat. Not at all, right? The disciples are in their Friday night spot. They are like, we are done. We are following you, Jesus, yes, but we are done in this moment. We do not want to do ministry. We do not want to feed the needs of the people. There's 10,000 people around. Can we just hang out with Jesus? Jesus. 
and have our Warriors game. <laughs> right? Can we just hang out with Jesus and just not be on right now? And so they're in a very different place. You can just like read it into the passage. It's so funny because as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a very remote place and it's getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy something to eat. It's very compassionate. He's thinking about the crowd. They're clearly thinking about the crowds. Like, probably not. And Jesus, in this very moment, says, oh, they don't need to go away. You feed them. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, gosh. And for those of us who have walked with Jesus for some amount of time, this is, this is part of discipleship. This is part of discipleship. This is those moments where you feel like you've done everything. You feel like you've followed Jesus. You feel like, I deserve a break. You feel like this is the moment where it's like, I kind of feel overwhelmed, I'm kind of at my limit, and we even create a word for it where it's like, this is where my boundaries begin. Right? This is where my boundaries begin. I'm only human. I need to have moments like Friday night for me to make it in the long run and to run the long race. I need to have moments where I step away and I just say no. Yes, but I also want to say that Jesus doesn't seem to have that in him. So I'll say yes in the sense that we're not yet Jesus. But not yes in the sense that that's what maturity looks like. I think sometimes we use the boundaries thing as a thing of like, now that I've entered into maturity, I have these boundaries where this is where I turn off my needs. Nobody can pull on me in these moments. And what I'd say to you is, the ones that have that mindset in this passage are the disciples. The ones that don't have the mindset in this passage is Jesus. And Jesus is our model. Jesus has something going on in him that allows him, even in his moment of need, even when it could be like, I just need a day to mourn the death of my friend, right? I just need a day. But there's something that happens when he cruises up to the shore, and it's this thing called compassion. Let's read it. When Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew the boat to the solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds follow him on foot from the, to the next town. Jesus landed and saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them, and he healed his sick, healed their sick. There's this thing that kicks into overdrive for Jesus, and it starts with this thing called compassion. Now, if you look at the Greek word compassion, it's really interesting. It actually breaks down to there's movement in your bowels. I kid you not. That is the definition in Greek of compassion. <laughs> there is movement. Come on, we can laugh, right? Everyone's like so serious. Can't, if you can't laugh at that in church. The real, the real, seriously, the real Greek word breaks down to there's movement in your bowels. And the reason for that, the reason for that is because the bowels were thought to be the place of love and, and pity. This is no joke. This is right out of Strong's Concordance. I don't make this stuff up. I promise you it's well-founded in uh, the study of the Greek language. Um, it's, it's this funny thing, but when you break it down and when you think about that, what, what compassion is and what Jesus is walking in a massive amount of and the disciples seem not to be in this moment 
is the ability to be moved in the core of your love and emotional spot by the needs of other people. Jesus sees outside of his own situation in this moment, and somehow he's vulnerable enough to the world that he allows it to move him in his deepest spot. When it says that Jesus had compassion, what it means is he saw need, he allowed it to enter in, and I'll say, it doesn't seem like there was much boundary knocking this thing down. He allows it to enter in, it impacts him, and he's moved to action. In the same sense, in this passage, we see that the, the disciples had a very different perspective on this. The disciples have got to be overwhelmed. The disciples, I have compassion on them. I am moved in my bowels for the disciples in this moment because I get it. Like, I understand where they're at. They go and they're like, this is 10,000 people. The need is way beyond us. They are completely overwhelmed by the need. And have you ever noticed that as you walk with God, one of the things that kills your compassion faster than anything else is when you allow yourself to be overwhelmed by need? Have you guys noticed that? When you get overwhelmed by the need before you, there's this, I don't know about it, maybe this isn't true with you, but I feel like this is true with most people I talk to. There's this self-defense thing that goes on inside that goes system overload, and there's like smoking coming out of like the system, right? Like, I can't take anymore. Like, the need is too much. And it, it makes you shut off your compassion to the need before you because you just, you're just overwhelmed. I remember when I was on staff with IV, um, there was a lot of need. I was living this life of, you know, college students. I'm trying to disciple college students. I'm not very good at discipling college students because I'm like two years into ministry. And the need is everywhere, and I don't feel equipped at all to solve it. And I felt constantly overwhelmed. I felt like I was constantly in situations where my heart was moved enough for the need, but my ability to solve it just did not, it did not compute. And it would constantly call this thing called burnout, where in my own strength, I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't know how to access God in those moments in a way that felt like I could address the need. And so I didn't know what else to do, and so I tried to do it in my own strength, and then I'd get frustrated, and I'd get burned out. Nothing would happen except I got really tired. It got so bad at one point that I stopped walking down Telegraph because... I lived in a way where when I was walking to campus, I'd walk down Telegraph, and I was walking down the streets, I'd see need all around me. I'd see the homeless situation, I'd go like, oh my gosh, like, how can we, how can we break the mindsets and break the systems that cause this kind of thing? How can we break even, like, it would, it would start to pull back, and I'd be like, does this start with fatherlessness? You know, does this start way back here with, with sins of generations that happened before these people? You know, like, it starts to get so big when you start to think about whatever issue you're staring at. And then I'd walk a little farther and I'd, I'd see some, something else go on and I'd be like, oh man, like, oh, how do I address that need? And then I'd get on campus and I'd be like, how do I address intellectualism? How do I address humanism on campus? Like, how do I address this massive thing that's going like, Jesus, like, how do I feed, your, how do I feed the people? And you see that in the disciples. They're just like, we're just like 
we, we can't do this. And they even say it to Jesus, right? Like, they look for the humanistic response. They look to the, the solution that can solve it in human, we, in human ways. Immediately, they say, all we have is five loaves and two fish. Immediately, even the disciples of Jesus, immediately they go to a humanistic response. How are we supposed to solve it? This is all we've got. And it's something that they can do in their power and in their strength and in their own abilities. And I feel like, you know, Jesus is like, we're going to learn a lesson here that if you get it, this will change everything for you. And so what we see Jesus do in this particular situation is he says, bring them here to me. So, so they give the response. This is what we can do. This is what we have. And he says, bring them here to me, he says. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, taking the little bit that they had. He looks up to heaven. He gives thanks, and he breaks it, breaks the loaves. There's a, there's, there's a formula in here that I, that I want us to see. He takes what he has, he looks to God, not to earth. He doesn't look at the people. He doesn't take what they have and then look out at the people and make a measurement. Right? He doesn't go, yeah, that's, that's not going to do it. <laughs> like, everybody gets a scale of fish and, you know, a crumb of bread. What he does is he takes what they have and he looks up to heaven and he goes, oh, yeah. That's how I'm doing my calculation. I'm not overwhelmed like the disciples are because they're staring at the crowds. I switch my thinking and I see the, I look to heaven and I take what I have and I say, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what I have. Thank you, Lord, for what I have. And I'll tell you what, for me personally and for, from what I've seen, this is the hardest step. This is the hardest step, taking what you have and being like, God, thank you. Thank you for, for the provision that I have in my hand that comes for you. That process of thankfulness, whether it's like the mission that we're in and the big thing that we're trying to accomplish in life or whether it's just our own stuff, right? Sometimes... Life is overwhelming enough. You don't even need to look outside to telegraph or sprawl or what's going on in the world right now. Life is enough. But how are you able, like Jesus, to say, you know what? I still have this in God. I look to you. I don't look to the world. And I say thank you. I was doing a, a training at work this week, and I was meeting with this group of people, and they were talking to me about this common millennial, I hate to label, I hate this, like everything's millennial this, millennial that, but I'm going to use it today. <laughs> this common millennial problem, which is you graduate from school, the world is your oyster, and you can do whatever you want, and it's paralyzing, right? Or maybe you enter the workforce, and you're, enter you're into the workforce for two years, and then you're like, have I picked the right path? 
should I switch now? Because if I set this path, it's starting to carve like a pretty deep groove. And if I head in this direction, I don't know if I like the outcome. So should I like go from sales to marketing or should I go from like the nonprofit world to like government or like there's this overwhelming thing that happens for a lot of people in like the early mid 20s, even late 20s, put whatever if that resonates with you, don't let me knock it down by age stuff. Like, <laughs> apply it. Actually, 45-year-olds are buying Ferraris for the same reason. So, um, so it's like, you know, there's multiple reasons why this thing can happen. But I was talking to this group about it, and one of them asked a question. They're like, they're like how do you make a decision? Like, how do you even start with something like this? And the advice that I gave was, do you know what you want to do 20 years from now? And they're like, absolutely not. And I was like, me neither. Like, I'm still figuring it out too. But I will bet that you know something. I will bet that while you don't know a lot, you do know a lot. Like, there's a lot of holes that you can't, like, you can't make decisions around stuff that you don't know. You can't get overwhelmed in the areas that are shaky and murky and that you don't have sight to. But at the same time, you know a lot. You know what you're passionate about. You know what you're good at. Maybe not the full swath of things, but like you have some experiences that have informed you over the course of your life. You know things that are exciting. You know things that aren't. You know where you want to, you know, like some things that are true about the future that you want to live. You could say at the end of my life, man, I'd love to, I'd love to say that I have a great family or that I didn't, you know, slave in my job the whole way so that my family suffered and I didn't accomplish what I wanted to. There's a bunch of stuff that you do know. And so the challenge that I gave to them was like, don't get so overwhelmed with all of the stuff that you don't know that you're paralyzed and you never move. Right now, there's plenty of stuff that you do know. Make decisions off of that. And I think the same thing is true with us in our walks with God. There's so much that I don't know about God. There's areas of breakthrough that feel capped to me right now. There's things in my life where I'm like, yeah, Jesus, I know that you said that in the body and the blood of Christ, that there was all provision made for anything, any problem that I'd ever, ever, ever encounter in life, but man, I feel pretty bound in this area. Or I don't see what I want to see in this area. And guess what? Jesus said the poor will always be with you. If we want to major on the stuff that's not going well, it will be very easy for the rest of our lives to do so. And it will totally lead to a place of burnout because we'll be overwhelmed like the disciples were because our estimation will be what's going on in the world and not calculations off of what's going on with God. And so this practice of taking what you have, the, in this case, Jesus takes the five loaves and the two fish, he looks up to heaven and he gives thanks. And then in this particular passage, I love this because he breaks the loaves. He breaks the loaves. It seems very innocuous, but this is very intentional from the gospel writer. What does breaking of loaves symbolize? It's the body of Christ broken. It's the body of Christ broken. So in, in, in this case, like, if you read the gospels, in the gospel of Mark, there's this this funny passage where the disciples say they have no food, but they have one loaf in the boat. And so oftentimes, there's this imagery 
of Jesus being the bread of God. And in this particular passage in Mark, it's very intentional that there's one loaf in the boat. It's like, Jesus is in your boat, is, is the point. And, and in, in this particular one, this is not, this is like core to, to Bible reading. This stuff is not unintentional. Like, Jesus actually broke the loaves, but the writer's making a point to say that he broke the loaves. And it means the provision for everything that we'll encounter is found in the broken body of Jesus Christ, including what happens here. He, he looks to heaven. He looks at the estimation of God. He gives thanks for what he has, and then he says, when I take the five loaves and the two fish, and I apply the broken body of blood of Jesus Christ, it has provision for all need. And the life of the disciples, they don't really get it because he has to do the miracle again, and he kind of scolds them later. But what he's trying to show them here is how to do life with Jesus, how to do it in a way where you're free of burnout. Because the disciples come in, they hear the need, and they go, are you kidding me? And they start to do the calculation. I guess we take an offering is the starting point, right? Okay, let's take an offering. And then, like, we'll send the fastest guy. Who's the fastest guy here? Okay, like, we'll send that dude into town. He'll borrow a donkey. He'll load it up with bread. And then he'll, like, bring people. Like, they start to do the calculation of what it's going to look like to fulfill the call of God. Because Jesus says, you feed them. He actually says, you feed them. So the call is huge. The call is way beyond what they could ever do. He gives them the real call. You go feed them. And like, that is like way beyond me. And he goes, here's the lesson. Here's the lesson for what it looks like. Come to Jesus. Ask him about it. He breaks it, and he provides it out. Each disciple goes out. Think about this. Each disciple goes out with a basket. It's got this tiny little morsel in it, right? Well, let's see. There's five loaves. There's 12 of them. So, okay, they have like a little under half a loaf each. It doesn't matter. They're looking at thousands of people, right? And the fish, what happened to the fish? Like, there's only two fish, right? So they cut that fish into six. It's like, all right, here you go. But like, when they start that journey, they're like, are you serious? Like, I won't even make it past the front row. And it takes listening and obedience Jesus introduces a posture of life where the estimations of what we do and what we don't do are not based upon the need. This feels simple. If you get this, it will change your life. What we always do is we base what we're going to do based upon the need that we see. Jesus didn't do that at all, which is why he could keep his compassion on. Because he wasn't overwhelmed by need. What happens with the disciple every time when I meet Christians that have surrendered their life to Jesus, he starts to transform them. They surrender everything to him and say, I'm all in. This love thing starts to flow through them, starts to flow through us in a way that's totally overwhelming because for the first time in your life, you care so much about the needs that it's totally overwhelming. And there's this process of walking into a faith that comes up that's able to hold the amount of compassion that you have. And what happens in burnout is our faith is down here and our care is up here. It's totally overwhelming. And the process that we're all going through is this thing where God's raising this one up to be able to handle and not live life based upon the need. Not live life based upon the need. 
it's totally paralyzing. You look out and you're like, how are we going to solve that one? And you know how Jesus does it? He says, just take this little thing. Just take what we've got, what we can do. Take what you can do. You apply obedience to that, you can change the world. Take, take this little piece that I'm handing to you. Let's just say it's your skill set and your gift mix. Here you go, right? That's what's sitting in your basket. You're like, are you serious? Like, my portion of the, of the crowd of 10,000 is like several hundred people. What the heck am I going to do with this? And then in obedience, you start going and passing out and giving what you have, and you end up with a full basket. Every person who grabs a basket and follows Jesus' command here ends the day with a full basket. If there were 20 disciples, there would have been 20 full baskets at the end of the day. So what we need to get great at, what we need to just commit to is living this life where we're not we're not moved. We're moved by compassion in the sense that Jesus saw their need and he was moved inside. So we don't shut it down. We don't look at need and just like, oh, if you had faith, you wouldn't care about that. Or, you know, like, oh, if, if you just did this better in your life, you know, if you made better decisions, you wouldn't be in need. You know, like, that's not at all what Jesus does. There's no analysis like that. He's just like moved with compassion. Wow, there's great need here. Look at them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And so he's moved in that sense, but he's not moved in the sense that he's so impressed with the big need that he gets crushed by it. He's able to see the need, but see God, give thanks for what he has, and then through the little that he gives the disciples, through obedience to the word of the Lord and applying the little that they have, they feed hundreds. Through taking the skill set that they have, the labor they have, the energy they have, the finances they have, and applying it, and then getting really serious about following Jesus in obedience, even though it doesn't look impressive at the starting line, that's, that's the key. That's the lesson that Jesus is trying to see them, to try to teach them in this moment. I see so many well-meaning Christians go into the places of greatest need like a crowd of 10,000 people. And when Jesus says you feed them, they start running around trying to solve the problem in their own strength. When Jesus says you feed them, what the immediate act of obedience looks like is, okay, I guess I take that command into my power, and I start running. And the reason why I know this is because there's not nearly as much prayer in the church as there should be. Like, if we got this, I believe what it would look like is we hear Jesus say, you feed them. We go into the deepest places of need, and we see this big need, but instead of running at the problem and scurrying around with a whole bunch of activity— it looks like a bunch of prayer 
and a bunch of fasting and a bunch of seeking the face of God, looking to be anchored in that thing that Jesus so easily did when he looked up and said, okay, like this is all you. I'm here with the five loaves and the, and the, the couple of fish, but like clearly this is about you. And the provision comes through that surrender and that obedience. Like, that is how we do life. That is how we have impact. That is the model that applies to pretty much every situation. Your compassion's turned on. You move into the darkest places of the earth. And Jesus, in that moment, gives you through obedience and the application of your skill set what you need to accomplish what he wants to do in that place. But that camping out, that first step of camping out, that is so important. Before we started the ark, uh, I heard this story about these missionaries in Africa that they would go into the darkest villages in Africa. I mean, like, you know, really crazy witchcraft stuff going on. You know, demon possession all over the place. And they'd go to start a church, and their formula was to pray and fast for 40 days and 40 nights before they ever spoke a word of Jesus or ever prayed for anybody or ever did anything. This was their formula. So they'd go, they'd pray and fast, and then right when they were done, they'd start to do the work. They'd listen to what God said in that prayer time, and they'd start to act, and they'd start to move in that village, and it just exploded. Boom! Right? Like, big explosion of God's move. Very tangible. And then they'd go on to the next one, and they'd pray, and they'd fast for 40 days, call upon the, the, the name of the Lord, find out his game plan for that area, and then they'd apply it. Boom! Explosion. And then they'd move on to the next one. And this was their model for church planting, and it just exploded. But guess what? Like, in the first 40 days, it looked like nothing was going on. There was no satisfaction of seeing maybe like that first person one to Christ in the first 10 days. Right? Like you take the church planters who do it this way, and then the church planters that do it kind of the conventional way, which is like, of course this is God's will. Let's just go do it. Like, okay, we're going out. And it's like, you take those two models, this one looks like it's totally losing after 40 days. Like this one's done a flurry of activity. There's like six Bible studies running. There's like two people that like have come to know the Lord, and they're just sitting in there like praying. And then afterwards, there was this woman, again, on Ivy staff, there was this woman who was trying to reach Mills back, I don't know, I'll say 10 years ago, just because I have no concept of, like, time and all that stuff. It was more than that, actually. It's like 12 years ago. And the campus said that she wasn't allowed to step foot on it. So she's got, like, fundraising, and she's got a call to, like, reach this campus, but she's not allowed to lock onto it. There's, like, no evangelism efforts. There's no proselytizing whatsoever allowed on Mills campus. And so they're like, yeah, you, no, not, not going to happen. And so she's like, what else am I supposed to do except for pray? So she literally spent, like, the majority of that year praying for Mills. She didn't, you know, she didn't, like, go and start talking to people and all that stuff. And, and at the end of whatever period of time, it was some extended period of time, I think what happened, I'm going to get the details wrong, but the, the, the overall is right. The, the person that was blocking her ended up leaving the campus, and this other person who came in was really friendly towards InterVarsity and towards the things that she wanted to do. So all of a sudden, she has access to the campus, and it's just like fruitfulness everywhere. Fruitfulness coming out of her ears. 
think for us, man, we got to recognize that, you know, all the cliche stuff that's said about us, this generation, it's true. The microwave generation, it's not even a microwave anymore. It's like faster than that, you know? It's like, I want it now. I'm in fast food, I'm in the line at McDonald's, and it's like, it takes longer than five minutes. I'm like, you call this fast food? This is ridiculous. <laughs> this is absolutely ridiculous that I have to wait this long. And I'll tell you, like, I'm, I'm traveling a lot these days, and when you're going through security lines and stuff, like, I am constantly like, are you kidding me that this line doesn't move faster? This is absolutely ridiculous. And I feel like the TSA on the other side is like, you realize that we're trying to keep, like, bombs and terrorists off your plane, right? Like, you can wait in line for just a couple minutes, right? <laughs> but there's this, like, frustration thing that's going on in me about having to wait. We want it productive. We want it now. Like, I can't even read a fiction novel anymore. <laughs> like, I sit down and read a fiction novel. I read three sentences. I'm, I'm so bored. I need a movie that like starts out with some explosion in the first 10 minutes of the movie or else I'm bored out of my mind. And I think we just need to like, we need to stop and we need to recognize how powerful a force that is and that it probably exists in most of us and that that is totally antithetical to the things that God wants to do that lead to fruitfulness. If you want to be fruitful, you're going to have to conquer boredom. If you want to be fruitful, you're going to have to conquer boredom. You're going to have to overcome that, say, that thing that just says, I need to be productive every second of my life. Because in the times where you're most productive, oftentimes it feels like you're the most bored. Like, I'm a big fan of prayer meetings. I actually love them now. There was a time where I fell asleep in them and I thought they were awful. I love prayer meetings. But let's be honest. There's going to be times in our personal prayer and in our corporate prayer where it's not, like, as exciting as watching, you know, Daredevil on Netflix or, like, whatever. Like, pick your thing. You know? Or, or like, feeling really productive by, like, launching a new group or whatever it is. If we're going to be fruitful, it's going to look like this. It's going to look like you applying all of you. Jesus didn't take four loaves and one fish and multiply it. He took everything that they had. And that's the same thing that we—you you put in all of it. And then Jesus goes, that is still pitifully not even close to what you need in order to do what I'm calling you to do. It's like not even close. All of your education, all of your skills, all the gifts that I've even given you, it's not even close. What you need is the broken loaf and the obedience to take these baskets when they look really empty. But there's this moment on the front end where we've just got to, like, camp out, find the face of God, do the work with him where it's like, God, like, what are we supposed to do with this? What's your formula, God? I want to I wanna be really, like, influential in the world. Personally, I want to be really influential in the business realm and then from the business realm out to the world from there. But, like, 
I've talked about this before. If it just likes, looks like working really hard in, in my day-to-day, at my job, like, that's not going to do it. Come on. And so there's times in our life where God tells us to do stupid stuff. It's not reasonable at all. And that's the stuff that's birthed out of that quiet place where you've developed the trust with him. And you get into a room of people and you go like, man, sustained revival for Berkeley? Are you kidding me? Like, you think that this, like, hundred and whatever person church, like, with a little sweat equity can go and, like, you know. <laughs> Let's do it, guys. When you get serious about the call and you just, like, fall to your knees and you go, God, like, too big. Show me what you're doing. I'll apply myself 100%. I'm all in. I'm surrendered. Let's do this thing. Show me what to do. And sometimes it looks like something stupid. Like take that tiny little morsel of fish and loaves and go and feed those people. I wonder when the, I wonder when the food had multiplied. You ever thought about that? At what point did that happen? It's kind of fun to think about. Was it like right away? Was it like, it's like, whoa, awesome. Start throwing loaves and stuff. Okay, come on up. Suki Longfield, everyone. But, um, but I cannot just sit here and not comment when someone's talking about prayer. It's just, like, not possible. So here I am. Um, I think the thing is, a lot of times, the, I think Ryan made a lot of great points about how um, we see a problem. And then I think what prayer is is an acknowledgement of our smallness. And I, I think that's why a lot of times we need to go and do it. And I think if we understood, I think one of the things that we don't understand is how powerful prayer is. I think we think like prayer, I don't know what your prayer meetings look like, but here, one of the things that I believe is that when we pray, we're not praying um, abstract things like just show me you love me. Those are nice. But we're like, no, I want to see people like broken free, like out of jail. You know, we want to see actual physical specific answers to prayers. We're not just asking like, oh Lord, just make my pride go away, you know, <laughs> or something. I'm, I'm, I'm so sad today and can you just make me a little less depressed, which is also very good, but we want to, we, but what we're hoping that we pray are really specific things. Like if your prayers are not obvious if God answers them or not, you're probably not praying specific enough. Like, a lot of times I think we pray prayers that God could or could not answer. We probably wouldn't even really know. <laughs> but, you know, those disciples, when they're, you know, when Jesus is multiplying those fish, those fish either multiply or they don't. You know, you pray for someone to get better. If they're not doing well, they either do or they don't. And I think our faith needs to start getting big enough and understanding that when we're praying, we're actually trying and believing that God will move in a physical way. We're not just saying, we're not just praying for spiritual things that only happen in a spiritual realm. We're praying spiritual things, understanding that the way that we address things in a spiritual realm manifest here on earth. 
in actual ways. Like, we can actually, I believe personally, that if we want to see this earth change and systematically change, that comes through being like, I am little, I am small, God, you need to give me answers and strategies, and you will actually shift and move and give me ideas and answers to how to do that. Those things aren't just going to happen because we muscle through them in our own strength. I really believe that the answer to this is a praying church. And it's not just like, oh, all those people do is pray. No, you've got to stop doing, after, after you pray, you need to go and do something and apply that prayer. All right? We're not just being like, oh, just go and pray, go and pray and pray. No, like, I, we believe that as you pray, God gives revelation. As you pray, that gives force and the grace released for things to start to happen in real life. You know, like, I believe we can see governments, we can see wars averted on our earth by praying. I believe that we can see attacks in the natural stopped. I believe we can see things like food multiplied. I believe that there should be no reason that people have to be hungry because we can see God actually physically do things. And I think that it's time for the church to start increasing our faith to believe that God can actually answer the things and the needs and the hearts of people really. And so I think that um, this is really key. I think as we're starting, one of the things, as we're starting to think about as a church and as a community, how does God actually impact a very real world? I think we have to start to increase our prayer life, and we have to start to increase our faith in those prayers that they're going to start to actually manifest in real ways. It has to be, our, our feet have to go where God leads. It's not that we just go there and we just expect and hope that it just goes well. I think the best thing that we can do is be like, God, show me what you're doing. I'm going to pray that thing into being, and then I'm going to walk, and I'm going to have faith that that's going to happen. And so um, that's just the word that I felt like I wanted to release. I really believe that as we're, as we're starting, we want to do more, we've got to pray more. If we want to do more, we've got to pray more. We cannot do it. The world will say, okay, I want to answer these questions. I'm just going to organize better. Yes, but how much better if, if God can feed 5,000, which is probably more like 10,000 or more, with a couple loaves of bread, how much more can he do with our prayers and our faith and with this many people? Yeah, so... Um, take it. Thank you. All right. Cool. Well, let's get the worship team up here. I'm going to do an amazing kind of like call for prayer, altar call, whatever. If there was something that God was moving in you that you want to respond to and that you want to reinforce through prayer, like there was something said where you're like, yes, I want that. I like, I want that sunk into my heart then come up and get prayer. Uh, but let's just do some business with the Lord as we uh, respond to the word.